0: Hello, and welcome to episode 1 of Destroy Before Listening, which is a conversation between myself, Pete Byrne, and Dave Snedden, aka Sned, who ran the Flat Earth label and distro for 25 years between 1986 and 2011. I first met Sned probably near 25 years ago, and it was the Los Crudos and Drop Dead gigs, which both happened within the same month here and it was just a mind-blowing experience at that time and at that age and I'd never seen any international like DIY touring bands before, so I suppose it pretty much instantly made us want to start a band and uh, began drumming and like two years later, uh, we had a track, or that band had a track on a Flat Earth compilation, which was uh, like more like noisier stuff they put out and then two years later we'd we went out of Leeds and he like mastered a record that we'd recorded under our uh, dad. <laughs> um, anyway, over like the 2000s, the team at like various gigs when we played Leeds and stuff. And uh, 2010s, he moved to Bristol and kind of bumped into him now and again in town. And then it was only like last year, we'd started like hanging out again and reconnected. and just began like recording these conversations and chats we were having about like the UK scene and figured it needed documenting in this way and we had an idea of doing like a podcast and talking to people. Uh, I suppose events at the start of the year meant remotely recording became like the thing you had to do and it was like a massive learning curve Uh, Figuring out how to do that, and then like produce these episodes. But uh, it's cool, you know. It means that these things can now exist and be out there. Uh, It was also good to do as well because it got them in the space for like writing these sort of recollections about the Station Club in Gateshead, and like what an important like venue and place that was in the like the sort of earlier 80s and like writing a book about that which uh you know he's working on at the moment and also getting like a flat earth band camp up and running which kind of documents the label and like puts the stuff out there music out there for people and uh don't know it's it's just a legend of punk really legend of hardcore punk in the uk and it was inspirational to my life and like many other people's you know what what he uh, what he did Uh, hopefully there'll be a part two at some point but that would be great if there was some like uh, like listener questions interactivity uh, what people want to know and find out you know and just like to thank everyone who's helped and supported so far in getting this thing up and running you know it means the world um, it will be available on most like platforms, most of the platforms. So please, I don't know, spread it, uh, like spread the word, um, share it, subscribe, uh, all that business. And there's a social media account as well on Instagram, which is at Destroy Before Listening, where there'll be like related pics, uh, like flyers, things like that to go along with, like, what people are talking about. So, essentially, watch out for more of these conversations and stuff with uh, UK people who are involved in various aspects of DIY. So, thanks a lot, anyway. The first point to kind of... Frame things would be the first sort of handful of gigs that you went to when you were, you know, coming of age the sort of uh, the 70s going into the 80s the kind of the, the gigs you were seeing, the legendary bands, <laughs> the experiences that like changed things, you know, for your direction.
1: So, I uh, would have been going to gigs when I was like 13, and that's when I first went to a gig, just like the Buzzcocks penetration in the, the wake of punk. And then that was it, the city hall in Newcastle. So I would, from about 13, just all the way, you know, through 16, 17, 18, I was just going to like, just everything and anything really that you could get to, you know, there's so many good bands around. so enthusiastic about music, reading the music papers and going to the record shop and just like being, a, you know, a teenager, just, and so around 1980, he would be, you know, he's kind of was like about 16 and I'm going to see just all sorts. It wasn't just punk. It was just and me and my friend David would go and we'd like sneak into the city hall and just watch whatever was on, you know. So it was all that um, stuff. And so like, yeah, um, you're talking about the sort of key or just, yeah, yeah. ones that stand out specifically, I suppose, would be. See, the first gigs obviously was amazing to be able to see a band live, you know. And then I could sort of list all the things, but I guess like going to see the Ramones, about age fourteen it was like and being at the front row as well and just having your ears blasted off and just being totally, yeah, totally it was It's like phenomenal, you know, looking up at them because you're I was in the front row, it's like looking up at Johnny Ramones, and you just <laughs> it was super loud. And at school, and ears are killing. Them. That was amazing, you know, and. Um, I'm just thinking about the City Hall now, just going on and on about the City Hall, and just what a lucky lucky person I am to have been around that age at that time and just been able to see all the things I could see, you know. So
0: So what what was the year span just sort of like just after punk to the early eighties or so?
1: Yeah, say like from nineteen seventy eight till about nineteen eighty one or something when I can't remember going to the City Hall much after that. I guess I was old enough to, well, then start going to like, then there was things like, you know, uh, forming a band and going to the station and things like that came later when I was sort of 18. So, so yeah, that era, you know, between about 13 and 18 would be, and you couldn't, uh, you know, I couldn't get into the Mayfair. I was underage and stuff. Um so like I missed, you know, like it would have been great to see Bon Scott with ACDC and things like that, you know. Oh yeah, Can't have heard, it yeah,
0: if you're those, yeah.
1: But you know, I went to Mayfair gigs a bit later on when I was old enough, so I saw some cool shit there later as well. But uh, and I'll talk about small gigs in a while. But so City Hall, yeah, was, yeah like you don't see Motorhead, you know, the motorhead come around once, twice a year. Girls' school, you know. um. Stuff like that, and then, like, yeah, I was lucky I got to see like Joy Vision and stuff supporting Buzz Cox. Uh, I'm just naming all the cool ones now rather than the sort of I saw Def Leppard on the
0: first tour, yeah, amazing
1: with Angel Witch and uh, Rock Guys, yeah. I think.
0: Yeah, what, uh, what about the, the shit ones? Name some shit ones, yeah, <laughs> Chris Rea, <laughs> <laughs> Chris Rea, <laughs> yeah, but that was just, just look, we've
1: been like we've been to like youth club I think Eldon Square I think, uh-huh. I think you went to like there was Eldon Square I had to, like table tennis or something we were playing table tennis in some youth club or something and we went along <laughs> you just go down the, you just go down to City Hall and just sneak in or whatever so uh, Brand who's, X yeah. as well that was the other one
0: who's who's sorry you uh, Brand X they're like jazz oh, okay oh, with, uh, right. I think I've heard with Brand Peter X, Hamill
1: too. was important yeah. and uh, what happened what what used to happen as well is if it's if it, if a gig didn't sell, I don't know how often that happened. Well, obviously Brand X just hadn't sold any tickets, so down at the record shop, I think probably Virgin in Eldon Square, or maybe Listener Volume, whatever, can't remember which record shop. But the record shop would have there'd be a load of tickets for a gig, you know, just like free ticket, you know. So you're like, oh, Brand X. So we were just like, you know, kids. You know, yeah. like That's good. Sounds good. Brand X sounds punk, you know and then it was like so there was Lord. so there's this sort of <laughs> gig at the city hall with you know I don't know like loads and loads of teenagers wanting sort of punk for free you know just and then, getting, they, like, then you feet get prog instead yeah, it and for you know, really. shit <laughs> hmm. uh, I'd forgotten all about that so yeah anyway going into great depth about the city hall years but they were, it, I was just really lucky um, I've forgotten okay, just lots and lots of names Bands anyway. Um, smaller gigs and yeah, the, the first yeah, no, the of smaller, yeah, well, I'll tell you what, I went to see the Tom Robinson band with my mum yeah. in 1978 yeah. when they were just coming out. And that was so that was the same, about the same time as seeing the Ramones, I was like 14. And that was the first time I went to a gig, they had like um, they'd leafleted all the seats in the city hall had like a leaflet on them, you know, like a flyer, which was like a rock against racism you know like their newsletter thing and it was the first time i'd ever sort of picked up anything that meant anything do you know what i mean from a yeah, yeah. concert or whatever and i thought that was so i've still got that piece of paper you know and it had a, a bit on then stiff little fingers were supporting tom robertson band at 78 like they just put out the first seven inch or something and there was a buzz really? in the music papers and i want. and i was like i want to see them and i remember my mom in the fucking city tavern and i was like you know tugging on her uh, coattails like come on there's a band I want to see on that are on the plane now come on come on <laughs> she's like I'm, gonna have, I'm just going to have another pint and I'm like fucking come on man <laughs> so I got to see like half of stuff fingers set Yeah. the City Hall where like no one was that interested it was just a few people a bit of a buzz at the front for a few people that knew about them and then this sort of the mainstream crowd that was followed you know Tom Robinson had the hit records and stuff anyway that's the precursor to my story of Stiff Little Fingers playing at the Guildhall in 1979, early 79, which was which was the week that inflammable material came out. Nice. And it was a Rock Against Racism gig, and it was it was supported by um, Essential Logic, which is Laura Logic from X-Ray Specs, who I'm a big fan of. And uh, Robert Rentel in the Normal actually played. I found that out later on in life.
0: But I guess I oh yeah, because because n- 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 because I asked you about that uh, recently, didn't uh-huh. I? And then you said you'd seen them, yeah. It's interesting. I don't remember seeing Robert Endland and Hall. Oh yeah,
1: that's, a, that's I definitely a thing remember seeing see Essential Logic. But anyway, I'm like, oh, what was that mm-hmm. like, 15? But it was an, it was an amazing gig. That's the thing because um, just I mean, and it's difficult thing is I'm not that asked about. To be honest, they've been rubbish pretty much ever since. But that, in my mm-hmm. opinion. But you know, since well, you know, but from a year or two later, I couldn't give a shit about. Them. But and that week at yeah. that time and that place it was phenomenal, you know. And uh, the fact that we were able to get in there, uh, they played again when they were still got kind of on their game, but it was at the Mayfair and maybe we couldn't get in, you know. Mm-hmm. There's a whole story about my friends getting to see them somewhere else and me not getting to see, but anyway, enough about um, several things. And then, like, the fall played at um, at the Tyne Theatre, which was an unusual. Mm-hmm gig event of a venue you know I'd never heard of a gig before or after that and that was with Cabaret yeah. Voltaire as well so that was a kind of what was I like 15 then and that was a big fucking deal you know to that and it was kind of um it was all just a different youth around the Newcastle area I suppose were just there you know it was like the first time you were seeing a bit who was who a bit of a scene I suppose He was sort of I was too young to be at the early Small punk gigs that I've heard about since, you know.
0: Well, well, to, like, the 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 crowd size. I mean, what sort of size crowds were showing up to these? A few hundred people. I yeah, you know, suppose. A few hundred people, people still decently, right, you know.
1: But it was just a different vibe to the city hall, where you're actually in seats. Well, actually, New Time Theatre had seats, actually. So theater, yeah. yeah, but Guildhall was like the first. I guess Guildhall was the first time I've been to a gig that wasn't. You were in a fucking seat. You know, yeah. That's I remember Mency stood on my foot as well. I remember that. But I didn't say anything. Possibly, I was just, yeah. Quite scary. Right. Right. <laughs> but I knew who he was. So, um, yeah. Anyway, so and then I got a bit older. <laughs> hmm. I suppose uh, the a You did. I just want to say the Rosillo's gig was fucking phenomenal as well. Yeah. to the end of nineteen seventy-eight, and they split up like two two days after that, or something. Uh, and that was supported by the Undertones and the Recons, and it was just that was amazing. So I just put that in there, uh, just mm-hmm. on, on their game, absolutely. Just go ahead, you know, fucking hell, man. Well, um, I continue to play the City Hall even in more recent years, you know, and my mate Ash would get. You'd get the tickets, and he would always get the tickets on Lemmy's side of, this, of the city
0: halls. You'd be yeah. like, you'd be at Lemmy's side, <laughs> and that, that, that's probably where well, you know, Steve, well I'm sure that's that's the kind of thing he does. Yeah, you know, yeah. gotta get you like get up there, get in front of Lemmy. Fantastic, man.
1: Yeah, we keep an eye on his ball patch over the years. I remember <laughs> sort of spot the different roadies and stuff like that. Like his I don't know, patch. I don't know. <laughs> I've never counted. I guess I've Jesus. seen them like 20 times or something, but I've never really counted it. Yeah. I was in the balcony when they were recording. Anyway, uh, like, no sleep with Hammersmith, some of that got recorded at City Hall. Right, I've gone off. Mind, a, I've, this is not very concise. I'm just rabbiting on about City Hall. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, funny. Anyway, yeah, so his formative times for me was I'm an only child and I was, I would, I went from like reading comics into reading the music paper as I had a subscription for a news agent and I used to read comics and then it just turned into like reading sounds magazine, you know, weekly music paper. So I was obsessed with, I would soak that up and read everything and sounds every week, every you know, uh, just really like obsessively obsessed about stuff like that. And I sit in my room, you know, and I would like, Obsessed with the fall, obsessed with the swell maps, and make little scrapbooks and just just be a fucking nerd, you know. And then I'd look in the back of the music papers for the little classifieds and you know find out about fanzines and things like that and sort of get like I was seeking you know something smaller and more independent and more interesting and do it yourself. Yeah, I I mail ordered a record like the swell maps seven inch from the band and put their own record out. Mail order it from them, and that was quite like probably when I started out. You know the DIY stuff. You know we were well supplied in Newcastle, having a record good record shops. You know had good shit in there, like Listen Here. You, you know, like Hass worked there, and not And it was just people yeah. like that, really knowledgeable people. It would you know, how cool. So cool, you know, so like yeah, like like a, you know, yeah. you would spend you'd be at the weekend. Yeah. You know, you'd be like. You can hang out at the record shop, you know, a Ridley Place, for sure. You go down Windows, yeah. you go down uh Callers as well it was like a travel agent on the Thumberland Street that used to have a record, like a floor that had records in it, which is <laughs> and whoever worked yeah. there just brought in all kinds of weird, wonderful stuff. And I got crass records from there and shit. Um so yeah, that obsession with music, you know, music papers, records, go to the gigs, just that was it. it was, it's always been my life, really. I don't care that much for other
0: things, it's kind of what it's been. What we do, well, I think, um, <laughs> yeah, I think this would lead to you know your first time you venturing out of Newcastle or the area to see bands. Ah. And you'd mentioned like going to see crass and how important that was.
1: Oh, before, yeah, that was that was a big deal. I, I mean, that's when I was like, I was. Yeah, sort of seventeen growing up. But we went to um, Reading Festival in 1979, which so I was That's like, great. Just turned 15, and uh, with with David and Kid Ricky, a few kids from school, and there was another kid from school had moved to Reading, so we were good to go because we could stay at this kid's parents' house, you know. So it wasn't like the independent mm-hmm. travel of later on in life, but. But I got to go to that festival at that age and you know, the Ramones were fucking playing at that festival. So that was like, that was everything. And then they canceled yeah. kind of sucked. But I got to see motorhead and the police and the cure, and the members of cheap yeah. trick and all this kind of cool shit, you know? Um, yeah, so that exactly. was my first, that was kind of the first time I really was able to go away without, without my mom and stuff, really like with, with my pals. Um, later on, yeah, yeah the crass was the, time so that was nineteen eighty one and that was in Crass were playing Carlisle and um and they like they never played in Newcastle so you had to spend you had to go out for the night and spend the night out. They didn't have any it was didn't have I'm any sorry, did drivers you. or anything like that. So you had to get I got the bus over or the train or I think it was a, I got the bus over there actually, yeah. And I found out just recently talking to my friends uh, Michael and Michael from Reality Control, who were like my school friends, and I didn't know them at school, but got, ended up living with them and hanging with them, and friends to this day. But I found yeah. out that I met them on getting on the bus. Actually, it's like so. So I had some people to go with because I was just going to go on my own, really. So, uh, mm-hmm. so that was quite formative because you were like obviously Crass played in this sort of Carlisle like market hall place, and it was just seeing the seeing how it was all set up, you know, there wasn't fancy lights or anything, it was just they had to set up their stuff and it wasn't a rock and roll venue, you know. And It was a small town and it was, you know, just lots of youths and quite a violent atmosphere in the air because it was just kind of, yeah. those were the times and stuff. And uh, so, yeah, that was phenomenal. And, you know, it's quite well-documented the were quite an amazing live experience. So,
0: Well, was... Mm-hmm. Was there a reason that they didn't play Newcastle or never played Newcastle? No, they just Newcastle. would play where they could get a place,
1: you know. Um, yeah. And they played a lot of small towns and played out-of-the-way places, which I thought was just depending on who wanted to put them on. It was done in a do-it-yourself-trust basis, you know. And <clears throat> so I don't yeah. know. It just never came to pass that they played Newcastle. But for me, it was interesting to go, yeah, to go to Carlisle and be like... And then after, you know, and actually... As well as the gig itself, which I can't remember that much about. I saw them a few times, and, you know, it's more about, like, the, after the gig, I remember the lights being up in this, just in this hall, you know, and it was like, right, it's, you know, whatever it was, 11 at night, and I'm fucking going to be spending the night in Carlisle. But that was a, we knew that. Uh, so I've got some time to kill before going to sit in the, in the train station for a few hours towards first train back or whatever and like just so but they were like packing down the gear the band was packing down the gear and making cups of tea you know and they, they had like a kettle and they were making tea and they had like some <laughs> um, you know a uh, loaf for <laughs> bread and some peanut butter and uh, Andy was like do you want a you know do you want a sandwich in? yeah I was going to say so you kind you of put the tea. well I'm not used to that I used to like the city hall and so, sort of backstage or whatever or you know, rock and roll stuff and then it's like here you know, these people are just you're chatting to the people like just and you having a cup of tea with them. So that sort of brought it home to me how, you know how sort of down to earth people were rock rose, stars. You know how unpretentious it was. Yeah. So I like, yeah. you know, that was what I took from that big time. Um and I got to know Michael and Michael by again sitting about you know on the journey back, journey there and they were a couple of years below me at school, so I didn't really speak to them because I guess that's what you did at school. <laughs> sort of. mm-hmm. And, uh, and you know, we got on. We had a, a sort of similar mindset. And not many from school, I think, were that clued up. I didn't really get along with many people. Most people I thought idiots <laughs> still do. Mm-hmm. But um, so I got on with those guys, and it was really good. And l- later on, we, you know, we moved in together, and we made bands, and we you know, did other creative things together and travel together. So anyway, that's later on in life. Yeah. But I guess it all began um, from just, that, that sort of time.
0: Yeah, just just a quick, uh, like a, a point of interest, just to uh, mention the bad, or what would have been or could have been with, should have been with the bad brains coming up here to play? Oh, it's, it's a bit of a non-story, really, I
1: remember it is but it's, it's, it's
0: worth noting. It's worth noting though, I think.
1: Uh it's like nineteen eighty three. Um uh, yeah. Bad Brains are not really known, but they've just put one record out here. And so we knew about them. And then uh they were you know, Dingwalls at the time in Newcastle was a sort of they had some really quite badly advertised gigs, you know, and it was they were on a Tuesday night and there was a, like little letters on the big on the posters of Bad Brains on a Tuesday night you know so it's like people didn't really know about it and they weren't that well known either at the time I think but I guess if it had been promoted people would have showed up you know they'd been um, oh, yeah. Yeah. so there wasn't many people showed up and then the band was late because they were uh, the truck broke down it turns out and then uh, they got it fixed and got to the gig but it was too late to play well they could they wanted to play but um the management at Thingwalls was like, Well, you you know, you've breached your contract, you're late, so you can't play, so you can fuck off. So um, plus there wasn't many people there, so there wasn't gonna make a lot of money on the bar. So um, so we are hang- we're hanging out with bad brains, but they're not allowed to play. It's just hmm. you know, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. So we sort of interviewed them in the van for the like for a fanzine and stuff like that. And that was it, I think, and that was just just bollocks you know like stupid fucking place, Dingwalls. walls and it was was quite renowned you know reading other people's stories of those times it's like they had these they just had shitty meathead bouncers that would just beat people up randomly you know shit like that happened yeah. you know just money grubbing uh entertainment sort of um chain that it was you know um, you know i've always been against bullshit fucking venues like the mayfair sucked i got kicked to fuck at the mayfair as well by the bouncers foot, next to no reason like you yeah. know and it you know this was this was what happened and people know about that shit so i've always you know it's bringing me to the point of i always wanted us to have our own place and, you know do it do it ourselves and you know self-police and sort of or whatever you know
0: just so this awesome leads respect. to the station doesn't
1: it it, I mean, does. it something in there it does, you know, very much so. Um Yeah. My life's always been about autonomous spaces and collectives and just not fucking doing stuff for the man. You get Do you know. Mm-hmm. So me and, and David from school, um, in High Heaton, we we wanted to make a, you know, we were both in music, best friends at school and in the music so we wanted to make some music, you know, so we would like add a guitar and he would he wanted to play drums and stuff, so We'd mess about doing stuff and making up silly songs in the bedroom and shit like that. And then sort of did some music with some other kids from school and stuff that just, you know, like people do, just fucking about. And, uh, yeah. and then we wanted to get, you know, get get better at it. Um And meanwhile, like the Michaels had a band as well, even Reality Controller. They played in a local like church hall and it was, I'd seen them and it was like, they were really fucking good, like really early on. and. um a whole load of us, we ended up... Somehow we found out about a music collective over in uh, Walker called Band-Aid. Band-Aid. Before Band-Aid <laughs> happened. It was like 1982, yeah. this is. Um, so we went over to this Allendale Community Centre in Walker and sort of met, like, there's a youth worker, you know, and uh, a few other people from bands, I guess, sort of showed up. So there was like a handful of bands and a youth worker, and you kind of... I guess there was a grant and there was enough money for equipment and, or some equipment and we could I can't remember quite how it worked out but we were we sort of I remember attending meetings at this community centre and stuff and we played there one time and things like that and they put on a festival in Walker Park and that and that merged into another that became another they changed the name into Lula Music and it became this and then they met up with another collective there was a lot of collectives kicking about and they uh that went off to be something else, but by at this time, and this is about the time we were, as well as making the band, we also were making a fanzine as well, so that was another way of reaching out to, you know, to putting yourself out there, you know, and going, this is what we think about things, yeah. and, you know, uh, so we was, they all happened in conjunction, and then, so getting into the summer of 82, it would it'd be like, I'm just turning 18, and going to, uh, the, the said music collective which we'd heard about and that really like that made just much more sense to us it was less uh, it was just better the crack was just better people were more like just they already had a kind of established group of people that had been doing this for a while through the garage and everything and, which we didn't I didn't really know about at the time and um, we just fitted in well you know there was other people with a similar mind you know and more of an anarchist mindset and more of a it wasn't about the money or the uh just the get up and go kind of attitude of, of it and um some great people anyway. Yeah, I'm going on and on about this. I mean I'm writing a thing about it right now. So Yeah. Uh, so we went right. to the station yeah. for the first time when it just opened and that was it, you know, you had this big room and it was run by the, the people, you know, and uh so you know, for the following three years that was going, you know, we rehearsed there and played there and things on there and that was my formative really really formative time in life yeah all kinds of noisy horrible chaos went on and uh
0: fantastic it's it there isn't would you say there's a like an equivalent even these days there's not there doesn't feel like it's different times you know a a music collective and a venue and everyone's kind of involved and like a scene, that's how scenes happen, I suppose. At times. But it, well, look, people didn't have equipment, you know. Uh, I'm not
1: saying everybody has lots of equipment now, but there was a lot of unemployed youth, it was, you know. Well, I'm sure there is now, a of, but I mean, yeah, lots and lots of unemployed people. There was grants available to get people to do these creative things, you know, because, so, the, you know, those grants had gone now. I mean, yeah, it's such a different
0: world. Um, well, it's sorry, it's important when you're starting out. Um, there are places you know, you've like 15, you you can't afford like drum kits and amps and stuff, so there needs to be like a a communal well practice space where you can do things. Well,
1: now, well, well nowadays, um, if you were a kid starting a band, you could go and hire you, would you just go to like First Avenue or somewhere and you would use the equipment there. You know, yeah. that's what people do, which is fair, you know, it's, it's legit. But in those times, I don't. there was like desert and stuff. There was places like that, but yeah. yeah. But the music, yeah, collective was just, you know, mutual aid. You like, you would help out with the place and I just gave you the chance to, to, yeah, to bring, we brought bands to the town, you know, and we put stuff on and, and, you know. You had your own space, your own world that you could be in, away from the—I don't know. Anyway, yeah, so idealistic. I mean, it did get smashed up a few times, but <laughs> but you know, it was a learning curve, big time. Um, so it helped the band, yeah, because we could rehearse, you know. Um, yeah. And so you know, I missed that. You know, it was it was great. So during the time at the station, around from 82 to 85, I was involved in the Gates of Music Collective. Um, we left... I left home in 1983 and got a flat in Benwell with Michael and Michael. Uh I rented the flat. And, and the living room was my room, so fucking hell, no privacy people coming through your room to go to the toilet. <laughs> but you know what? It was away from home, so it was like kind of freedom, you know, like independence. So... Yeah, and you were signing on the doll, so I was getting my gyro and you could like spend your money on booze and records and live in your flat, you know, so pretty cool. I uh, saved up some money, uh, got a grant for bedding, which I spent on a double tape recorder, and then uh, was able to copy our band's demo the main- tape because Blood Robots had made a recording.
0: Yeah, Blood Rob- Robots being the first band that you um started yeah formed
1: we, were, yeah. we had a few it was just me and dave and we had other people came and went but it didn't quite get going till till 1983 so yeah eventually we got a lineup when we met mickey uh through an advert in the in the, in the record shop and then he when we got along you know it was really like then it really picked up and he brought some songs and some ideas and and then we worked and it it. So, yeah, we got this thing together by by summer of 83, we'd recorded at Spectro Arts, which was another place where people would meet up in Newcastle. It's quite a Spectro Arts cafe down by, I um, don't know, I can't name any streets and knock them all down. <laughs> but anyway. Yeah. Um, in, in Newcastle yeah. somewhere. Um, and so we had a recording of our stuff. Michael, who I lived with, was on a scheme there as well. So he was on a scheme in the in the eight track studio and stuff, so that's kinda quite useful to have his input. Um yeah. and then yeah uh, back at the flat I'll be copying the uh demo tape and then taking you know carting them about to gigs and stuff, you know, on a bio demo. So that's the beginning of like making of distributing and producing music, you know. Um um and at the same time the fanzine was was was, was sort of under its fourth, fifth issue. David took a lot of it over. He's a really good artist and he sort of organised uh, printing stuff and that. And I was less involved. But so there was the fanzine was happening and the demo tape was happening. And about a year or so later in 1984, we had like then we had the, the notion of doing a split release, like a flexi disc with our band and Reality Control. And we made a, a flexi disc and that was like exciting you know because it was like a real like almost almost like a record not quite with a fold-out cover yeah. and all kinds of leaflets inside it so it was very meaningful and um and that that presupposed that's predates the record label but through that um through the flexi disc it was enabled us to uh, make some trades with other similar you know people around the country or in fact, or in fact, specifically, I remember a trade in Italy getting a lot of cool shit from Italy, but that's opened up the, that world of small, just people putting out their own thing and doing the trades so that to me, that was the beginning of a network that developed over the years of, you know, record labels and trades and, um, uh, and, and I, so that's the beginning that sows the seeds for that kind of, and then I went on to do a record label and, and the following couple of years with the later band generic which was with me and mickey were in it as well we made a hard record and then and then that 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 just flat earth started there so it's 85 86 and then yeah. that cracked that went on for the following 20 odd years so oh. so that's kind of how that came about um
0: uh, yeah so the, this this it's it basically stems from uh the zines and the tapes and like the collective idea you know f- forming a, a label and you know getting out there
1: yeah yeah you would like you know there was resource centers so there was like benwell resource center having like a duplicating machine and the one in walker did it so that you could sort of once you realized you could create your own zine you know it was like even though it looked kind of poor quality it was just that statement of that was very important yeah. and again it, it maybe gets written out of history a little bit people with well, bands. it's co- communication. It's communication. No, it's, as well, you, isn't you it? know, you've, so yeah, you've got the zine, you've got the communicate, you've got the zine front and sort of leaflets and stuff. I mean, we're also involved in this anarchist group as well. So you were making leaflets and newsletters and things, and that was another communication outside of the music stuff, you know. So, um, so you know, these things meld together. But that's what you've got. You've got your your music and your printed word. And your, uh, and your networks development. So, yeah that's, that's, uh, yeah, that's sort of how it came about. And that was it. Just while that was all happening, we were in various shared houses because none of the flats we lived in were lasted more than a year. You would get sort of moved on to the next place. I don't know. Just maybe bad luck that we didn't end up. It would have been nice just living in the same place for more than five minutes, but we kept just moving around West End all over the place all the time. guess landlords just want your yeah. money until they've fixed their house up and then they tell you to fuck off. I don't know. I was never a bad tenant, but we just moved house a lot. But then I kind of, I'm, I'm kind of glad of it now. I had a lot of different experiences, lived with different people around there and stuff. And I, you know, uh, yeah. transient um, times, if you like. Okay. They, they, well, you mentioned the,
0: the sort of anarchist side of things or the politics, but, um, you know, there was a lot of uh, things happening around the time you've mentioned. And, like, you've got the food corps and, like, pro- the protests that were happening. There was a lot of, um, you know, like, the class war and minors, C&D, anti-apartheid, things like that. Yeah. Just how that, like... It, is is also a part of the culture, or it inspirational to you know, a, a
1: message? Um, know, I'm trying to think of thinking of the miners' strikes at the so, moment. Do I need to rephrase the question? No, well, just naming all the things I could, uh, But well, yeah, all that stuff was happening. I guess politicising as, well, you kind of, you knew what was right and wrong, but the Falklands conflict, you know, the Falklands war, spring of 82, was pretty
0: seminal, you know, it
1: was like, that's when you realised what you
0: were, you know, that's when... So does that create an unrest uh, well, or feeling of unrest for the, the like, the decade? I
1: was a little kid, I remember shit like the three-day week and all that, power cuts for them but I was politicized, yeah, I mean, definitely with the fall and sort of, some, you know, because it was like, I was in sixth form or something, it was like kids were, you know, some kids would be getting behind it, because it was the, you know, in the Sun newspaper, you know, Murdoch, and I mean, that's like, and Reality Control wrote quite a lot of stuff about that in their records actually but, because it was a big deal, you kind of realized that, that, that's when you realize people can be manipulated, and that's when you realize the power of the tabloid media and the, and the bullshit that they come out with, which we're living with right now, you know, always have done, but that was a wake-up call, you know, and just sending off young men to get slaughtered for fucking, for, for, for Tory, the Tories to, to get the jingoism up and get re-elected and Thatcher and all, all that stuff, so you kind of, that was a wake-up call there, and that's when it was no longer, you know, lovey-dovey, love and peace, it was like, fucking hell, this is this is harsh. So there's that, you know, that's that's key. Also, um, I mean, the minor strikes like a couple of years later, 84, 85. And that's, then you really realize, you know, that's when you, that's when it got, got more militant. Really. That was just, yeah. I don't, I don't know. I don't really have to describe. I think, you know, people, people never forget. You don't forget about that shit. Yeah. It's horrible. But I mean, so I wasn't like witness. I was, not get beat up. I wasn't really, uh, uh, you know, we like collected food for, and things like that, but we didn't, I wouldn't go out like flying covers or anything particularly, but, um, mm. that's what time mm. you were living through anyway. And the threat of nuclear war, obviously, um uh, cruise missiles landing here and like we went down to Molesworth to like a sort of peace demo. You kind of realized that peace demos don't really don't do a lot really. And then stop the city was like a more, my kind of idea my kind of idea of a of a valid, more useful way of um spending your time. But and that was in London yeah. uh, initially and that was going down to you know, just pointing out the fact that that the city is where the money's made and that all this shit happens because of the city, you know, and that's it's like going to the heart of the matter, you know. So it was a bunch of fucking Conkers and weirdos or whatever going down the city and sort of trying to blockade it not let the bankers into the banks, sort of thing you know that kind of thing so there was yeah. so that was quite a that's when you were just lining up all the different things that are wrong in the world but just getting behind the the beast that is capitalism you know as well as you know but it ties mm-hmm. in with sort of and I was a vegetarian it was like animal rights was important to me like hunt sabotage was another thing that that yeah. was you know m- most everybody was involved in around me you know it was like um, it was to save yeah you know, you- of course it was to save foxes and but it was having a pop at the rich as well you know <laughs> 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 having a bit of a shout
0: and, <laughs> but it was a you saved. mentioned sorry you mentioned like
1: food courts oh, yeah, well, yeah sorry yeah rich. But again the yeah yeah. Again, the collective idea, along with the music collective, would be uh, yeah. food co-op, food and companies. being a vegetarian yeah. and all, and um, and finding out that you know Suma, in uh, I guess other people had done it before. I don't know health food. You know, I guess just Suma was a, is still is a huge distributor of health food, and um, you could if you've ordered 150 pounds worth of stuff, they would deliver it for free. So it was kind of like you'd get the catalog and a a lot of people would just chip in, you know, it's really common sense. Just, um, I think everybody just, I can't remember how it was bankrolled. I guess everybody just chipped in and then bought a load of food and then sold it to yourself. (laughs) That was someone's yeah. uh, <laughs> cupboard. But it, it, kept, it, it, it went on for a couple of years at least uh, in that way. Mm. So like uh, Michael's house, we had like a, had a cupboard at the top of the stairs with all the different like, pulses and Sosmics and Tartex or whatever, you know, like things like that. You know, uh, just yeah. dry food and sealed things and just that would be in like the, it uh, wasn't like vegetables, it was just sealed pulses and rice and this, that, the other, and you would go around and you would weigh some out and you would pay the, the rate for it. And it, it so it rolled on like that. And we rotated it around a few different households. And our household was less a bit more chaotic and it ended up like it wasn't, you know, I don't know, people didn't write stuff down and it didn't, it didn't totally pan out. But um, that's what that was happening as well, you know. So it's another uh, sort of example of this collectivization, sort of do it yourself. thing was going on yeah um you know whole food was a bit harder to get hold of to be honest you know things like sauce mix were quite quite antiquated now but there was like one health food shop in newcastle as far as i remember and there was like one brand of like vegan margarine and so on and so forth it was quite and soy milk was like expensive you know and things like that like thing that you take for granted now well, yeah. It was yeah, it was harder and it was le- it was more marginal then as well. So it was a little bit you had to put the effort in. So yeah, that was part of the lifestyle as well as the rest of it, you know. And making homebrew was pretty crucial because it saved saved save money and you could drink more. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> and you, you know, yeah. you uh, yeah, all these other just cottage industry type homemade type things would go on. So yeah, great, you know. Um, there wasn't Primark then, or but,
0: uh, a, I don't know. So up close uh, together. Um, <laughs> but, um, well, to bring it right. back round to <clears throat> sorry, to bring it back round to bands mm-hmm. again. Um, so you're playing in Blood Robots, but then that like sort of fizzles out, and then but you start generic. Generic starts in like early nineteen eighty five, which was. So, this is with Mickey as well, isn't it? Carrying over. Yeah.
1: The Blood Robots sort of fell apart in like, summer of 1984. Um, just, well, it fell apart. Just, just, yeah. People had different interests and went off in different I don't know. I think we've done what we could do. Well,
0: you're, you're young, aren't yeah. you? Yeah. So. I
1: don't have to explain it too much. But, heck, no. David, heck, was definitely, I think, he, well, he, he was less committed to it. And he went off to do some, playing some other bands later on that were fucking great. But, um, yeah, it just it just had its time, I suppose. And then there was a few months where I don't remember doing anything much with bands, with people. I think I messed around. Yeah, jammed with some people at the station and stuff. Yeah, like public servants, played drums. And just was hanging about. can't really remember. It was a winter, and I guess I was just hanging about. Anyway, January 85 was yeah generic. Wiz and Terry been trying to get a band going. Over in lemon for a long time and and we met them down the station you know, and stuff and they were like, Do you wanna wanna have a go at this some new band thing? So we I turned up and then Mickey turned up as well. So they'd asked us separately, but we were like, Oh so surprised to see him there but then you know, so we carried on. I mean, I've been in three bands with Mickey over the years. So, and it just worked yeah. straight away with generic, yeah. So like the early practices just it worked. And it was no, well, it was more like we were into, like getting more into hardcore music and fast, you know. Um, whereas Good Robots was not the same, yeah. So was, I suppose that was it. it was two of us went off to do fast, and two went off
0: to do. Other, yeah. like, weird, weird. So this <laughs> would this would, this would be like the influence of tape trading would not it? The bands you
1: were
0: yeah yeah um, in in music um, that's faster. maximum rock and roll, was, and... like I mean by this time
1: yeah. I wasn't. I wasn't really reading sounds as much. I left home. I wasn't really, the music papers I didn't really pay quite as much attention to at this point because now I had like maximum rock and roll. You know, that was your Bible for your International and your hardcore stuff. And zines themselves and everything. So you would find out, you know, and so there'd be people who were ahead of the curve, like sort of dig and digger and people who had tapes from, yeah, people who were onto the latest noisy groups. So you would find out about new things and stuff. So yeah, we're influenced by lots of music. and, um, Yeah, and like international hardcore. And so, you know, from all, of, you know, just from everywhere. So, so we're into that, you know, and now we're doing that. And uh, that band went on, first line of generic went on through 85, halfway through 86 for it. ended. And, then, and we were able to we play the station a few times, but we were able to get out of town we've got we played in leeds at a squat gig oh no that was blood what, sorry just ignore that i <laughs> get <Forget> that one <laughs> um but like we played places like leeds and um and liverpool and like birmingham at the mermaid in birmingham and stuff which is quite a well-known thing now yeah so we we'll played with podcast. nate on and you know and the and there's bands like this so it's sort of so we got a bit out of town a bit more than we used to. We're a little bit older, we're like 20 or something. And yeah, anyway, yeah, so that's what happened with Generic. And then.
0: Well, it, it, I know in was 1987 was the first time you went to Europe. That was a later
1: lineup of yeah, Generic, right. yeah, we stopped. Right. And Mickey was doing other things, less music stuff and a bit more um vertical stuff. And there was a music collective forming up in Lemmington, where Wiz was and Terry were from. And, and we, we got the offer, yeah. We, so we got the offer to go to Belgium with electric abuse. And we weren't going to turn that down. Sounds, that sounds great. Yeah, we'll go there. And we sort of had a yeah. new lineup of the band. We got Nat to play bass. And we uh, practiced a few months. And then we were, like, went off. And that was just the, the second lineup. And, and a weekend in... Belgium and Holland and it was like this is fucking great you know wow maybe beer and things and, yeah. and it's just the excitement of going abroad And so and a few of the hardcore you know punk bands were going over to Europe at that point so sort of exciting new frontier and then we went later on that year and did a like a slightly longer tour and then and then just and then we took to over the following end of the 80s through the 90s I just took to going on tour
0: I, I was on tour an awful lot in Europe or different
1: uh
0: bands yeah you were saying you were saying that you used to kind of just run into bands all yeah. the time like cross crossing the ferry you know but, yeah. yeah so it must have been you know, a popular
1: yeah people yeah kind of, just,
0: well, i think for you you know
1: there was a lot of it going on yeah and you you know yeah something like the ferry back belgium was running into different people and yeah there was this sort of circuit of it and
0: would would this be um, how, and um, you know you you were going over uh, this generic and you hang you will you would see people like other bands but HDQ was one wasn't it was this how, Dickie Hammond, like helped you out playing guitar, you know I for two. Yeah. bass actually Dickie. Two, uh,
1: bass. bass yeah. yeah. Uh... Well, when that, that left the band and Dickie off the, he just stepped up at some gig and was like, I'll play for you, I'll stand in for you if you want. And that was like, so then we took him up on that and went on a tour in Europe. Yeah. And then, uh, and then a later lineup as well, he stood, he stood in as well. So yeah, just, but like the HDQ, yeah, the Q just, he came back with Tales of Europe with HDQ, their first trip over there. And, uh, just, I can't really do a Dickie impression, but yeah, he was just enthusiastic about how amazing it was and it's fucking great, you know, and so he's just telling us all this stuff about it. So he was, he was just hooked on it and the queue. Were, and I went over there with them a couple of times as well in the back of a van with loads of people, you know, just hell, just fucking no seats or anything, just sitting on top of amps. <laughs> fucking. So he did all that shit, you know, and that was, um, yeah, they were just going on tour a lot. You know, they had a hunger for it. it just was uh, touring a lot, definitely. H C Q And then you were able to do it. There was a bit of a network, I guess. The same thing, you know. You, I guess, their contacts would become our contacts, and you would ask around, and you sort of build up a a network in conjunction with, yeah. you know, the records and and the zines and everything. You just, you know, you'd find out. The more you went, the more you knew where to go or where not to go, and who to who to ask, you know. So just this it was a healthy sort of scene in mainland
0: Europe, I think. Yeah, I know. I know. I think you said you just kind of winged it. Was it the first time you went over, and you just kind of were a bit clueless as to like how you were going to get anywhere or what? Yeah you know you were going to do the- yeah
1: well we just went for a weekend and we had a gig in belgium and then that was what we were going to get paid to do and it was going to cover us getting there so we just we didn't have a van and it was just like we went on a, it was an electric was just met up in london and got on a ferry got on a coast that took us to a ferry and ended up in amsterdam and that's and then thought right we'll go hire a van and then realized that you, have, you need a deposit and thought that through but thankfully, the kind woman from Conqueror, uh loaned us the money, trusted us enough to uh, we'd only just met, trusted us enough to with a deposit, yeah. which we then you know. So we a hired the van and we drove to Belgium, did a gig, drove to Venlo, did a gig, and uh, and that was it. I think it was, uh, three gigs we did, yeah, two in Belgium, one Venlo, and then that was it. It was just like a. But this so, weekend away in Amsterdam, you know, and it, you're young and it's Amsterdam and it's like, hey, you know, you can smoke weed yeah. and drink and do whatever you want. Yeah. Stay in some, some squats floor. And, that. and it was a, it
0: was about 10 of us there or something. So it was the right fucking thing gone. So, I mean, would you say that the element of, you know, trust or whatever was stronger then? You know, you could just, people trusted you a bit more in Europe or. You know, if someone's loaning you or letting you pay for a van and they, they, they you know, don't really know well, you. We knew, uh... we knew, well, we were
1: going to go to stay with those people. But unfortunately, Harry's brother had written the address down wrong, so we couldn't find a place. But we eventually found the punks. So they, they knew who we were. They knew what we were about, you know, distributed a record. So it wasn't like we weren't known. It was just our naivety. Yeah at that yeah at that the huge deposit business but um but then yeah you just got to know more people as you went along, you know, and I would trade records with Conqueror and I was a big distributor and label in uh, Amsterdam that you know, like things like No Means No came through them and Victims Family and all this kind of bands at okay. that time. They did a various compilations and and it was yeah it was really like a bit of a hub of a place. And I got to go to their office and it was like, you saw the scale of doing that. And it was just really fucking cool at times, you know? Um yeah. And yeah, it just, it just built up. I think the next time we went, we met, yeah, just people through the mail that you met and just communicated again, maximum rock and roll was useful again. Just, yeah, just the network building up. It's the same story going throughout all of this interview, you know, it's just the certain points where, networks build up and and you learn, you know, you might yeah. somebody might flake on you and you won't let you know, you're not letting them have any more records or whatever the fuck. And you learn who's Yeah. Who's reliable and who isn't, you know, and it's like you just build that up, don't you, over time. Um
0: well, what would you say that you took from, you know, you grown up in the eighties and your experiences to like take over like his uh, uh, concepts or I- ideas into the '90s things that would uh, things that stuck with you. Um, I just
1: took the same. Well, the learning curve what from going to the Station the music collective to uh, music collective and limit and food co-op and that and then moved to Leeds and was all squatting and food co-ops and bands and putting out records and stuff. So same stuff and then um by the nineties we'd gone I was in other bands but we've just gone around Europe more and um don't really know how to answer it yeah just more of the same, you know. Just not really changed. My lessons were learned pretty early on and I just but I always knew that's what I wanted to do, you know. So I always knew I wanted to do it on my own in my own way, in my own terms. It was never about making it career wise or whatever, it was always about just getting out and seeing you know, just doing things, seeing the world, doing it in your own way. It's very important. So that's been a constant from the beginning to now, you know. It hasn't really changed. Just that yeah the networks have developed in different ways, but it's the same principle throughout, you know, so